Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Mack Weldon with a smart design, premium fabrics, and a simple shopping experience. Mack Weldon underwear is definitely better than whatever you're currently wearing. In addition to looking and feeling great, all Mack Weldon products are crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities, so they work hard too. They even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. All that, and they are shipped right to your door, and if you don't like the first pair, keep it. They will still refund you, no questions asked. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your purchase using promo code WATCH. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me in the studio, the only Steppenwolf he acknowledges is the theater in Chicago. It's Andy Greenwald! Hey man. Happy Happy birthday. Thank you. You you turned an age since we last spoke in front of <laughs> I microphones. I flipped it. You're looking well. I flipped it for real. You are looking better than Warner Brothers box office reports this morning, which is all we're going to say. Timely. Is that all we're going to say? Well, we might touch on it, but guys, we're not here to dance on the graves. We're here not here to, to really like bust up your mother boxes. <laughs> we're here. It's weird that we know all this stuff and we didn't see the movie. I, true. It'd yeah. be weirder if I saw the movie, yeah. considering my, br- my my brand. Yeah, man. We'll touch a little bit on Justice League's box office returns. Uh, we're also going to talk about the Wrinkle in Time trailer. Mm. Later in the show, really excited for this. Yes. We are going to be joined by one of our favorite screenwriters, Scott Frank, who has a new show coming out on Netflix at the end of the week called Godless, a very cool Western starring Jeff Daniels, Jack O'Connell, Michelle Dockery, Merritt Weaver yeah. out here. Sam Just Watterson, right? The Rifle Woman, uh, Sam Watterson. But what else you know about McNary? What else do you know about Scott Frank? What do you know about Out of Sight? What do you know about Get Shorty? Walk Among the Tombstones. Logan. Okay, we could do this, right? Minority Report. The so, author of the novel Shaker, which and is really good. The writer and director of a underrated classic yeah. called The Lookout with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. So we're really excited to talk to Scott in a little bit. Um, Andy, I wanted to. We we would be remiss if we did not talk about what is now, I think, arguably. The biggest scandal to maybe ever hit Hollywood in terms of the reverberations coming out of these sexual assault and sexual harassment, sexual uh, misconduct, and sexual misconduct allegations and and investigations, and the way it is affecting um, the industry at large. And it's difficult to talk about because each case and each situation is very mm-hmm. specific unto itself. So it's hard to talk about it generally without painting it. With you know, with broad strokes, and and thus not really doing justice to each of the stories. But we wanted to talk a little bit about the Jeffrey Tambor situation, mm-hmm. just because again, uh, we're looking at not only um, a moment of obviously having to take a step back, and the, and, and the, the the folks who work on Transparent and Amazon and Jill Soloway are going to have to figure out what they're going to do with the show moving forward, but the extent to which it affects. The legacy and impact of that show, which has been profound, I think it's it's fair to say. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's truly fascinating for people who have not been following. Um, there was an accusation levied against the star of Transparent, Jeffrey Tambor, uh, a week or two ago mm-hmm. uh, by his former assistant on the show, and then that um, was joined in the past week. Yeah, that was Van Barnes. Yes, yeah. by Van Barnes, and an accusation against him by the trans actress who plays the part of Shay. On the show, Trace Lissette, yeah, Trace Lissette, that uh, he was also he also behaved in an inappropriate way and got physical, yeah, and became physical in some ways towards her. Mm-hmm. Um, he vociferously denied the allegations. Uh, there were rumors last week that Transparent was the writers were under a mandate to break two versions of season five, yeah, one with the star of the show, one without, and then uh, over the weekend, news broke that Tambor has removed himself from that situation by saying he is leaving the show he cannot work under these circumstances yeah and quote i've already made it made clear my deep regret if any action of mine was ever misinterpreted by anyone as being aggressive but the idea that i would deliberately harass anyone is simply and utterly untrue given the politicized atmosphere that seems to afflict at our set i don't see how i can return to transparent it's incredibly difficult to talk about any of these cases i think um but important to do so and we will try our best um one interesting thing here is that he refers to in his comment, he talks about a politicized atmosphere on the set. Mm-hmm. Transparent is itself a political act. The yeah. show always has been. And one of the more interesting aspects of the show, um, not necessarily equal to the wonderful writing and performing that has marked its first few seasons, 
is the fact that it has felt like this sort of radical, transforming, evol- uh, evolving um, piece of art that has become more than art. Um, Jill Soloway, the creator, has talked very openly about how the inspiration for the show came from her own trans parent. Um, she herself has gone on a transformation of her own during the four seasons of the show, mm-hmm. um, one that I just actually disrespected in some ways because I said her tran- her transformation, she is now uh, gendered, they are now gender, gender neutral. Right. Um, that's something I spoke about with Transparent star Amy Landecker when, when she was on uh, the podcast. Um, everything about the show is political and intentionally so. Th- more so, I mean harassment and misconduct, these things need to be dealt with seriously and swiftly and fairly in any workplace, whether it's in Hollywood or not. Transparent does seem to me to be a almost unique test case for this because it's just, it, it, it's somehow, I don't even know how to express this. It's more intolerable. It's more impossible. This is the place that was created specifically yes. to be... To be progressive. To and be to be free where, of these kinds yeah, of exactly. predations or behaviors, um, which makes all of this particularly shocking and difficult to process on the level of Jeffrey Tambor has long talked about how this role changed and affected him. Yeah. Uh, surface level reputation of a, as a gentle and um, in many ways liberal, I don't even mean political person and performer, uh, and shocking and difficult to process because this is a beloved and important show in this current age of television that appeared to be driving smoothly into its fifth season. And that show that we all, and many people, I don't need to say we, admired and and liked and loved so much is irrevocably different now. It's changed. Yes. And I think that, you know, you mentioned that um, they, there was rumors that Soloway has been asking Amazon for time to thoughtfully write the more Pfefferman character out of the show. Uh-huh. So uh, it'll be fascinating to see how this plays out. I, I, not, not in a morbid way. I, I, I think that you're right. If some, if anyone is sort of uniquely qualified to address this, you know, in a in a progressive way, it's probably Jill Soloway. It's really interesting that that Jill Soloway will be is 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 at the forefront of this, mm-hmm. um, or has to be at the forefront of this. Has to, has to respond. Has to adapt politics into art. Um, at this point in their career. Um, one other note about this. Obviously, we don't have any inside information about this. No. We, our, our opinion has been, as we've talked about these things as they've come up, and when it's been appropriate for us to talk about them, our opinion is pretty much the same, which is believe people when they speak up, be, believe people's bravery and respect it, and let people let situations play out as they need to be, uh, as they need to do so, you know, within a professional environment. Um, but one thing that I this did make me think of that I think is worth noting is the different levels of behavior that this scandal is affecting, and, and I think hopefully in a positive way. Because going back to, all the way back to Harvey Weinstein, people say everyone knew. Well, no one knew that he was a four-decades-long serial rapist and predator. Mm-hmm. I, maybe some people did. The majority of people, quote-unquote, in Hollywood did not seem to know that. What people, even on a casual, people who only have a casual, casual relationship to Hollywood did know was that he was a monster and an asshole and a bully, and vicious, and someone you do not want to work with. And yet, because it was Hollywood, or because we thought that the world worked in a better way than it did, and we had the privilege to believe so, we shrugged it off. Now, you and I, I don't say we, like you and I had a say in it, but everyone's like, well, that's what you do in the business, and you're used to it, and you adjust yourself accordingly if you want to work in the arena that is Hollywood. Um, There were echoes of that in Tambor's first statement, where he said that I can be a volatile person, I can be difficult to work with. Now, there is no question that to make art and to be a creative person taxes individuals in a very specific way that can cause them to flare up or express themselves. It's also the holding pen for a lot of very difficult personalities in general. I mean, a lot of people who gravitate towards the creative arts Mm -hmm. do so. And have demons. Yeah, do so because they... I, I mean, they want to live in a certain, not live in a certain way, like outside of the boundaries of legality and propriety. I mean, they, they want to express themselves and they, that, that doesn't always mean joyful artistic creation. That can be, yes. that can be really being and have some dark clouds over you at times. And, and that can also maintain an element of um, extended adolescence. When people talk about, oh, let's chase the summer, being on a movie set's like being at summer camp. 
it's just a short amount of time and everyone's intense and in their feelings and nothing that happens there matters. It doesn't go past that. You know, there's an element of that when just as a layperson, you can hear that and be like, oh, how fun. Mm -hmm. Or as someone, and I'll use I statements, who was in um, high school and college productions of plays, be like, I kind of miss that. Putting on a show with your friends and then you go out to the cast party and you drink and you've all shared this experience. But there's also slippery lines of, um, of behavior and intimacy that happen in productions like that. And it is clearly possible, and this is the case with, with, with um, musicians too, people in bands or, or you know, rock singers or whatever, the persona takes over your life because you think you have to behave a certain way, where this, this attitude can become pervasive in your life and an excuse to say like, I'm an impossible person when I'm doing my art. And then you are monstrous to people, and then it can be forgiven. And what's interesting yeah. to me, when, when and if smoke clears, um, if there can be a, a real honest discussion about that, that this idea of the, the troubled genius, well, you don't have to be an asshole to people that you work with. You don't yeah. have to be volatile. The, the, you don't... The, the people who wrote that narrative are the, are the people who were never in a situation where they were out of they were facing someone in power, right? Where they were, where they were threatened. Yes, and that's and that's I think the most Im- important thing to sort of draw from this, maybe, because it, it's so hard to 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 find like uh, something to definitively say about any of mm-hmm. this, other than it's horrifying. But one thing that you're you're hinting at is this awareness that people like Harvey Weinstein were. Uh, you know, it was it just it, that Harvey Weinstein was a bully, and you heard um, like John Bernthal went on that Jim Norton show and talked about working mm-hmm. with Kevin Spacey briefly on Baby Driver. It's just like the guy was a bully, and you know these, this sort of recognition that these people are using their positions of power and then being lionized for their um, their peccadillos or their you know mm-hmm. their, their their tantrums or their mm-hmm. moodiness or their their willingness to bully other people mm-hmm. you know and, and frankly that that's come up in the Matthew Weiner discussions too in terms that's of great point. him and Cater Gordon and uh and the situation there and basically Marty Knoxon wrote a Twitter thread that was just like Matthew Weiner was incredibly difficult to work with and was a Prone to tantrums and manipulated. She people. called him an emotional terrorist. Yeah. And this is Marty Knoxon, who has done great work on her own, but also worked as a writer producer on Mad Men for a number of years. Right. Um, that's another example that I was I was um, chasing in my mind, which is people know that he's was impossible and egotistical and demanding, and we sort of gave it a pass. And again, I I think this is maybe this is the work of our podcast in some ways always but to sort of try and disentangle the 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 art from the artist if and when it's possible or appropriate to do so. Because we, I knew that he was demanding, that he was, like, yelling at people for the wrong period ashtray on the set. Sure. Um, but I think the show is a masterpiece. And so I was like, well, maybe that's the price you pay for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was fortunate to be in a position on my couch where I did not have to actually Absolutely. have skin in that game. Um, but uh, Come on. I mean, but, d- difficult auteurs are yeah. one of the sort of— We love that stuff yeah. as fans yeah. and as critics. Um I, the other thing that I think that is important, especially now, and we are not going to attempt to litigate this, nor should we, is, is to put things in different boxes. You know, this was this was terrible. This was pretty bad. You know, this is not the time for yeah. that it, in any by any stretch. But I do think it's worth noting that that the the people who are you know we're talking about like the Weinstein's, like you know, pretty like monster like criminals and monsters. Um, there is a running thread through all the other ones that all the other examples that have come up that I think some people have said, oh, maybe that's not as bad, or, or or they put them differently on the sliding scale, which is a reminder that people in power, and all of them are men who are in power to various degrees, almost never think about the people in their orbit who are not in power. Yeah, there's never a moment yeah. given to think about that, and that is cultural and systemic, and people don't think about that. But I'm thinking about even these smaller. I don't, I, I'm doing it again. I'm not trying to measure. Them, I understand, but. We read about, you know, reading today about, there's a New York Times reporter, Glenn Thrush, and there's a, a, he's been suspended by the Times for behavior that is documented in a Vox story. And you read through the story, and my, 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 my feeling about this is, that sounds like people that I've worked with or, or circumstances that I can understand. Doesn't appear anything in there is, quote unquote, illegal. It's just a series of terrible decision making, terrible behavior. And the concept of mentorship as a as a bully pulpit and, and feeling and there's a great piece online that we could link to I think it was in the Atlantic about the myth of the bumbler about being forgiven for not, not really considering the situation mm-hmm. that you found, that you put someone else in that's the through line right it's just you're with people and you're not aware of the power imbalance because men who have achieved a certain amount of power 
were never taught or never took a moment to think that there is that imbalance. And that is a common thread here. So regardless of what happened on the set of Transparent, um, to, who are we talking about in the allegations? It's the star of the show who's won Emmys, his personal assistant, and a trans actress who has been a guest star occasionally on the show. Sure. There's a huge imbalance. Yeah. And, 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 and that's something that I think in this whole— And even if you look and say—I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend this for your mental health, but even if you look in the comment section in blog posts about uh, Tambor's exit mm-hmm. from the show— I would say the overriding uh, sentiment among people who are commenting on stories, again, not an accurate mm-hmm. representation of what people actually think, is there's no show, show without Tambor. You know what I mean? Yeah. The star, the idea of this stars sort know of that. star figure, yeah. whether it's a star creator, whether it's a star actor, whether it's a writer, you know, this idea that the, the world will stop spinning without yeah. them. If you're number one on the call sheet, yeah. which is a feeling I remember from Talk the Thrones this summer when I realized that I, that I was number one on the call sheet and it was a burden you know, that I carried, hopefully with <laughs> dignity. Um, you had all the answers. I mean, that you know, was the thing. You know, I didn't know what happened in Game of Thrones. <laughs> but, but yeah, I feel like there, this, is not, this is not the podcast for this. This is not the moment for like teachable moments. But if, the, if at the moment, if there's anything to take from this sorted, sorted, these, these sorted affairs that are continuing to unfold... Think about think think about systemic imbalances in sure. every part of your life. There is no um, there is no respite from this in the news, but there really shouldn't be because this speaks to something that is built, yeah, baked into our culture. Yeah, and I think that the culture. most important thing that's happening here is it's making us confront what the what the price what price we're willing to pay for stuff that we like. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's easier to look back decades ago at um, at say a piece of music that you know is made by a disgusting person yeah and just be like yeah but it was the 70s mm-hmm. everyone was disgusting well it's now now yeah it's now you don't have to have a 20 years later we find out that you know the person who starred in house of cards was was a deeply troubling human being and that's going to force us to confront you know our relationship to these things and that is a confrontation that many people turn to entertainment to avoid and we yes, we are absolutely. certainly same thing with sports the mantra you hear but stick to sports mm-hmm. i wouldn't be surprised if sooner or later you hear stick to tv and and i i'm guilty of it as much as anyone you know and this is supposedly my professional purview to think about this stuff mm-hmm. but i love the ignition remix i've always loved the ignition remix and we've known about the allegations and then more so about against r kelly for a, over a decade mm-hmm. and it's the kind of thing where just think about everyone has one piece of art like that and i'm not telling you how to wrestle with your own relationship to that art but maybe think of maybe don't wrestle even if you're not going to wrestle with it just go back run your back pages and think about how you've done that in the past you know how you have negotiated that sure. and, and for me it was just like well guy the song exists and i love it gosh i love it you know can I ask you a different question? Jason Jones said something at the Vulture Festival this week, and they asked him about his comedy heroes. And I think it was something like who inspired the detour. It's the, that TBS sitcom. Which we like. Yeah. Good, good, de- good sitcom. And he was basically like, don't have heroes. I think if anything we've learned right now is that the, mm-hmm. there, there isn't – I'm obviously paraphrasing here, but – Basically, there is not a, a w- overwhelming amount of heroes in Hollywood. These are very mm-hmm. – you know, a lot of people who work out here are very troubled. If you want heroes – choose a fireman or a school teacher or mm-hmm. a first responder. And um, I think that part of there, – there's been a, um, a residual effect of social media and, and, and the way the internet industrial complex works around pop culture is the lionization or the heroization of, of actors, of directors, of writers into uh, huge figures. You know, yeah. these, and, and these agents for uh, worldviews. You know, you're like, this person – is the manifestation of what I think sure shouldn't be happening in the world. And we're finding out that, I mean, it's, it's, it's not ironic. It's tr- quite tragic, actually, that several of these people, whether it's Louis, mm-hmm. whether it's Tambor, um, that we may be held up as these paragons of progressive, inclusive, um, they, they think they, 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 they speak for us in some mm-hmm. way, are in fact double agents of some sort of, uh, of of real dark evil in this world, you know? Yeah. And I, I think, I wonder whether it will force a reevaluation of even just the level of importance we place on, on people in Hollywood. As you're saying this, and I, and I agree with it, and I, and I wonder what happens when, I don't want to say when, I would say if, I don't even want to, but, but, but when you're talking about this, I think of two things. I think about a movie we're about to talk about, which is The Wrinkle in Time. The people involved with whom are heroes, 
and I it, 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 I say that intentionally after the what you just said. They are avatars for a lot of people's good uh, good faith, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Ava DuVernay, um, Oprah, Mindy Kaling. People see them worthy women, all obviously and important women. See them as vessels for a lot of their hopes and dreams, sure. um, artistically and politically and creatively. If if someone involved in this enterprise who's a another person who's a good guy or a good gal is revealed, you know, and and I think also about um, the conversations we're now having and reckonings with art is something that has happened more in politics, but kind of hasn't because Ted Kennedy. I think we have a lower opinion of politics. True, but like yeah. we this this Chappaquiddick movie coming that um, for people who don't know about it, it's apparently quite a good film um, that reminds people that Ted Kennedy. I mean. Chappaquiddick is the ignition remix of politics. I yeah. mean, it's, I don't mean to be glib. It's this horrific thing that definitely happened. Mm-hmm. So did his career in the Senate. Look at Al Franken, who I think is a fantastic comedy writer and performer. And politically, I, be, I support quite a bit. I think he's done good work. But then you see, you hear these allegations. It's just this thoughtlessness mm-hmm. and this, this arrogance, this hubris. Um, that now in a very real way, and perhaps it should, threatens to undercut the good works that have been done. Yeah. And it is, yeah, I, I, keep, I keep caging what I'm saying, so I was about to say it's tough. But who's it really tough for? It's tough for people who are, who are victims of this. It's yeah, tough for it's people. it's not tough for us. I it, mean, like it, the, It's not tough. It, 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 it's challenging to try to unpack this and articulate this, but that's on us, and that is a responsibility as fans and arbiters and critics and whatever we are. Well, let's talk stuff. a little bit about Wrinkle t- in Time uh, and Justice League just because we have to go talk to Scott in a second. Um, obviously, I, I don't want to like make these films a binary, mm-hmm. uh, but we just did a superhero movie rankings yeah. on The Ringer, and it, I think a, a lot of... Like, Sean wrote... you know, Sean has been talking very thoughtfully about with Jason and David on The Big Picture and has written some stuff where we're just talking about the state of the superhero union, but I think you could even go wider and talk mm-hmm. about... Hollywood blockbuster filmmaking, which in lots of ways is synonymous with the superhero sort of universe. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just like the franchise universe, this idea of like hitting, whether it's a pre-existing intellectual property or finding a new piece of content to expand and push forward mm-hmm. and have be. And that, I, I think A Wrinkle in Time obviously has an eye on this mm-hmm. towards being a, an it, epic. It's a Disney of, movie. Yeah. And it's a Disney movie. Um, you can't help. I don't think that there was any plan to put this out the weekend Justice League came out necessarily, but the... Well, as Disney, it, might, it probably was. The juxtaposition of the two is quite striking mm-hmm. between the clarity and colorfulness of the, of the images, imagery you see. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, with Justice League, I'm not, I'm not even talking about what uh, is in the film because I haven't seen it, and, and I'm not in a huge rush to do mm-hmm. so, frankly. Um, the... The expense of the of the movie is very interesting. I don't really personally; it's not my money, so mm-hmm. I don't really care how much they spend. Whether it's a two hundred and fifty million budget before they get into marketing it for what they've been doing it for the last eighteen it's, months, so that could it's it's over half a billion. Yeah, and um, I saw a couple of things this weekend that was just like, well, maybe movies shouldn't cost this much money. <laughs> yeah, what a radical idea. If your idea. expectation is that this movie needs to make half a billion dollars to start getting into the into the black, I. That that just seems like bad math to me, and I, I, I'm sure that I, I could be proven wrong. And I'm sure once uh, foreign box office comes in and they do all the other accounting might, that they can do, that this will be a profitable movie in some regard. Well, they'll be able to spin it as such, but I don't think it will be. Yeah, but if a 94 million dollar opening weekend is a total and utter mm-hmm. failure, then I, I think you're doing. I think you you need better accountants, and I think you need a better business model. One thing that I've noticed in <laughs> meetings here, creative meetings, is that the most instructive or most um, inspiring trend in movies is not, at this moment, in 2017, is not the shared DC universe or even what Marvel is doing. A lot of people feel like, well, not only is that ship sailed, but that's Disney and Warner Brothers beating each other into submission. It's the same way that a lot of people look at, at Netflix or Amazon and some of these other networks are like, what do, how do we even compete with this? The most the, the thing that really is resonating is Blumhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, people just like certain kinds of stories, and what if we told a good version of them? Mm-hmm. So, the 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 weirdly the movie this the sweet spot that people are looking for is the five to fifteen million dollar movie 
and I think good things can come from that. It will be interesting to see if that trickles into the kind of franchise storytelling. One example I would point to is what Fox is doing um, with with its slate of, of X-Men properties, basically movies, yeah. looking at it and being like, none of this makes sense on its own. And so what how, what can we do to get creative? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to talk to Scott Frank. Logan was essentially a Western. Uh, Deadpool is its own thing. Um, New Mutants is a horror movie. Yep. Kind of a cool idea. Horror movie. Also, savvy. Cheaper cast, smaller setting, haunted house, horror movies are successful. And you would know better than me, but I would have to imagine that uh, Fox is probably thinking we need to do a reset on the X-Men movies. Soon. Soon. Yeah. Yeah, And we'll kind of take a little bit of a breath. And that, I, I find it fascinating to see how pot committed Warner Brothers is to this. And with, you know, whether or not they think they can get out of this by doing Flashpoint and coming up with an alternative timeline and keeping the parts they like and getting rid of the parts they don't, or whether or not Mm -hmm. they're going to say, you know what, screw continuity. Matt Reeves has his DC, and maybe Joss comes back into some more. They've sort of started to publicly nudge in that direction. Right, that there could be multiple Batmans in multiple movies, and we're not going to get into this Sinai Affleck up for nine films thing. And it's worth noting that... Marvel and Disney have been pretty silent about what happens with the Avengers movies after Infinity yes. War and what comes after yeah, that. Yeah, we talked about that a little bit. Both for Andrew, recasting yeah. the parts, but also have they, can they spin this that they've basically conned Warner Brothers, one of their biggest rivals, into committing billions of dollars of folly? Yeah. Are they going to pull back from the big movies, which as we talked about last week, don't really work? Um, that's That would be kind of interesting to see Marvel, I think it it can't be overstated how much how f- much farther ahead Marvel is than DC right now in mm-hmm. this regard. Because Marvel can make movies about characters nobody's ever heard of, like Guardians or Ant Man, and they're successful. Mm-hmm. They can take characters that were thought of as kind of a little bit of dead weight, mm-hmm. like Thor, and make them very successful. Mm-hmm. They can introduce new characters, like Captain Marvel and Black Panther, are already hotly anticipated. Mm-hmm. You know, it the, the Justice League was. Treated and greeted with such a sense of dread and derision. Yeah, and by like, me obviously, but by people you there's an eight to. month drumbeat for for Black Panther. I mean, it's just like it couldn't be more night and day. Yeah, and the way they and the way they they play the public expectations game. They play Twitter right. They hire well. They have people who seem like they're having a good time. You know, we make fun of like the, the, the Atlanta studios hang, but they seem to be fairly genuine, and that vibe does communicate yeah. in today's social media era. One other thing that might cause Warner Brothers to be less pot committed is. Brett Ratner's Rat Pack has a stake in some of this, that his company was on on Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. Um, Kevin Sujihara, who, when taking over Warner Brothers, laid out this strategy. Basically, people made a lot of fun of this, that showed his release schedule, and it was like 2020, Untitled DC Movie 6. Sure. Untitled DC. He had 10 years of these things planned out for the shareholders. Sure. He, he's the one who gave Brett Ratner a $400 million deal. He's under the hot seat no matter what because of his handling of some of these properties. But there was a story in The Hollywood Reporter that was linking him and Ratner. And you don't want to be linked to someone like Ratner. Uh, You shouldn't, both for business savvy, but obviously for now his pretty appalling record of what appears to be serial predation. So that's all a mess. Wrinkle in time stuff. The other point about it that's worth making is this is such weird source material. Um, If you're going to be scraping... I don't want to say dregs because I love those books. I'm a big Lengel head. Yeah. Like those books, I, all I remember is just how reading them as a kid, their covers were weird. The vibe was weird. The names were weird. Their character's name is Murray. With, it was just R-R-Y. And I'm like, did you forget a vowel? <laughs> Everything about it was so trippy yeah. and, and strange. This, it looks that I, pretty that I, psychedelic. That I, and yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. And if you're down to the stuff that people weren't sure how to adapt the first time they had their, their pick of the trough mm-hmm. of IP... And your choice is this heady, interesting book about a smart girl saving her father or a not-at-all-remembered 1984 arcade game about a giant ape, wolf, and lizard attacking Chicago. I know which side I'm on. Now, obviously, people are like, hey, the trailer for Rampage is out. How funny. Like, and maybe they, they tongue-in-cheeked it correctly, and it's The Rock sure. fighting a giant ape. Okay. That's IP that they bought and groomed. How yeah. weird is that? I remember that game. Yeah. But there's a reason the Duffer Brothers aren't putting that in Stranger Things Season 3. Like, that was not <laughs> iconic. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So take this thing that worked for some people, and then let's run with it, and let's cast it interestingly, and let's and let's imagine it differently. And it seems like Ava DuVernay, who walked away from Black Panther, mm-hmm. 
was given the same opportunities here that Kugler ultimately seems to have been given, perhaps, perhaps more freedom because she didn't have to tie it into a larger universe. No, it's more, the universe that she's tying into is one of real creation. Exactly. And, 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 and what's truly exciting about both those films, not just the fact that these are terrific filmmakers who deserve the biggest canvas possible, but they seem to have understood, and maybe this ties into their social media stuff, they've understood their moment and played it so well. Yeah, that these they companies, talked about that uh, over the weekend. They were actually. Vulture Fest together, yeah, right? I think they both said that, like, I really wish I had movies like this when I was 10. Mm-hmm. You know, and, it, and that can't be overstated. It's it's pretty cool that in this trailer, a, a character who I don't remember these characters at all. The, the characters played by Reese Witherspoon, Oprah, and, and Mindy Kaling. But when Oprah Winfrey's like, you need to be a warrior, it's like, this is Oprah Winfrey telling you this. This is a natural treasure and resource. Why isn't she this part in all of the movies? Like, why did it take Ava DuVernay to be like, you know, who's an actress and also the most. Uh, uh, inspiring voice in American culture. Sure, let's let her be yeah. a, a wizard or god or whatever she may happen to be. So it's it's cool. I don't know about the movie, but you know, I think America's also all in on rescuing Chris Pine. Yeah, like I just feel like we've 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 really come around on Chris Pine. He's re- <laughs> what a, what a journey he's had the he, last year. I, I think he, his his stepping to the side of the Chris Wars has been the best thing for him. You yeah. know, what was low key a great move for Chris Pine. His commitment to the Wet Hot American Summer franchise. <laughs> he has now shown up for two totally marginal but very funny sequels yeah. to a barely remembered cult classic film. He just shows up, hangs out. He's a cool Chris. All right. So Chris Pine, we're counting on you, man. I'm fine. I'm glad we ended up in a comfortable place of agreement. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we'll be back with godless writer and director Scott Frank. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Zelle. Zelle is a new way to send money to your friends and family from your banking app. Cash is easy to lose, and checks take a while to clear, but with Zelle, once you're enrolled, the money moves right between bank accounts and typically arrives in minutes. Pay your share of the cost of Dad's gift, request half the cost of the Christmas tree you bought with your roommate, or pay the personal trainer you hired after Thanksgiving with ease, all thanks to Zelle. It's easy to use and works with most every bank account in the U.S., and don't worry, Zelle is safe and backed by major banks, which means you can send money confidently. Just go to zellpay.com to learn more. That's Z-E-L-L-E-P-A-Y.com. Zelle. This is how money moves. Today's episode of The Watch is also brought to you by three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, written and directed by Academy Award winner and watch favorite Martin McDonough. Three billboards stars an impressive ensemble cast, including Francis McDormand, Woody Harrelson, Sam Rockwell, Peter Dinklage, and Abby Cornish. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri has been a hit with critics and festival audiences. It's the winner of the Best Screenplay Award at Venice Film Festival Audience Award at the Toronto International Film Festival and at the San Diego Film Festival. The darkly comedic film is a uniquely entertaining tale of revenge and redemption and is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, now in select theaters. Andy, uh, we're back. We're going to be talking in just a moment with Scott Frank, the writer and director of the new Netflix I don't want to say show, but we're going to get into the terminology here because it's almost more of a miniseries. It's called Godless. It's a Western starring Michelle Dockery, Jack O'Connell, Jeff Daniels, Sam Watterson, Scoot McNary, Merritt Weaver, a bunch of people. Scott Frank is probably collectively one of our favorite screenwriters between the two of us. He is responsible for one of our favorite movies, mm-hmm. Out of Sight, who mm-hmm. he wrote and Steven Soderbergh directed. Soderbergh is also the executive producer of Godless. Scott also has screenwriting credits on um, a, like a litany of masterpieces. I mean, anything from uh, Logan to Get Shorty. Minority to Report. Minority he, Report, here's, Malice. Here's the other thing why we just, we're going to talk to him about this, but just to set it up, why he's so important to us. This is the guy, he is the, um, the pulp whisperer. This is the guy who Hollywood turns to because he understands some of the best crime writers enough to translate their work. He's, he's adapted James Lee Burke. He's adapted Charles Williford. He's adapted Elmore Leonard. Um, Lawrence Block with A Walk Among the Tombstones. Yeah, which he also directed. So he, this guy has great taste uh, and works on really good projects. And Godless, which premieres on uh, the 29th, I believe. I think it comes out Friday. So this week. I think so, yeah. Uh, Godless premieres this week. It's good. I mean, yeah. the, there's very little else you need to, to say about this. Weirdly, it's, it, it is a classic Western. It's got people who can ride horses, look good with a rifle, um, and a really kind of sneaky... There's a sneaky politics to it that sort of unfolds as the show goes on that I appreciate. But it is well-timed, I think, 
for Netflix, particularly right around the holidays, like sink into this when you're home. It I would a say good it's an incredible act of writing because, you know, I think you tend to think of things when you say, oh, it's novelistic. It's you think of The Wire and you think of this sort of uh, expansion of themes throughout seasons that it take in, you know, the idea of institutions and their war on the individual or, or whatever you think that The Wire was about. Uh Godless feels more novelistic in the way it episode after episode adds layer after layer to character. Uh, and that watching different character combinations interact somehow illuminates motivation and illuminates backstory. It illuminates what these people desire and what these people want from life. It's a fascinating story. We'll talk to Scott about Godless and some of his other work right now. So Andy and I are now joined by, uh, we couldn't be happier to be joined by Scott Frank, the writer and director of Netflix's Godless. Uh, Scott, you know, I heard you talk to Brian Koppelman a little earlier in the year about this before before even the trailers were coming out. And you kind of referred to this as a miniseries. I know terminology is kind of up in the air these days in Hollywood in terms of what is... What's a miniseries? What's a limited series? What's long-form storytelling really mean on television right now? But do you stick by that assessment of Godless after you after you've sort of finished it and it's about to be released? Um, I think so. I mean, I don't know the difference between a miniseries and a limited series. I just know that I did something that I broke up into seven episodes. <laughs> so um, I, I call it what you will. Um, I think Netflix refers to it as a limited series, and, and I guess by that they mean that we're not expecting to do another season, you know, of uh, uh, another season of the show. So, um, but you know, you never know. Who knows what what will happen? But I think it's I think that's what it is. And and by the end of the show, I may change my mind to give you a new definition. <laughs> can, can you talk to us a little bit about the origins of the project? Because I believe I've seen you in interviews talking about this um, for a number of years, and maybe even saying that it's one of, if not the favorite scripts you'd ever written, that initially it was meant to be a film, and that it, here we are now with this terrific miniseries out of the same source material. It was absolutely meant to be a film, and I wrote it, I started writing it around 2002, and um, the problem at that point was Westerns were you know, just dead as disco at that point. And nobody was really doing them because as feature films, because they didn't, as they say, travel and they didn't do well overseas. And I just really wanted to write one anyway. And I remember saying to my agent, I'm going to take a year or two off and write a script on spec. And I remember her saying to me, you write anything you want as long as it's not a Western. <laughs> and um, um, I immediately took her advice and wrote a Western and spent two years writing it. There was a year of research. Um, I, have a, I have a terrific researcher named Mimi Munson who's worked for me for now 17 years. And so we work very closely for a long time before I even start writing anything. And I was bound and determined. I thought if I write something really good, I kept thinking about Gladiator, which sort of rose above the genre. And I remember when they were making Gladiator, I kept thinking, what a dumb idea. Who wants to go see a Gladiator movie? You know, aren't they dead? And yet I saw that film and I loved it. And I never thought about it as a genre movie. I thought about it as a great piece of melodrama. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do that. Well, sadly, (laughs) no one agreed with me. So I finished the script and no one really wanted to make it. I kept hearing for years and years, you know, we love this script. We hope someone else makes it. Um, and I'd also written it for Steven Soderbergh to direct. I thought, well, maybe we'll put the band back together. Right. And he was the first director I gave it to in, in, I think, 2004 when I finished the script. And he said to me, you know, this is maybe the best thing you've ever written, but there's one one small problem. And he said, I, I'm, I'm afraid of horses. <laughs> so <laughs> that sort of ended that. Let's talk a little bit about what Godless is actually about. And I was curious, something for such a long gestation period, was the initial idea. So the story is about this, essentially the town of LaBelle, which is largely populated by women who are uh, widows or the people left behind from this terrible mine explosion that happens uh, sort of as the, I guess, off screen in the beginning of the series. Uh, And... Then there is this sort of parallel narrative of Jeff Daniels' outlaw figure who is rampaging through the frontier looking for this guy, Roy, played by Jack O'Connell, who has betrayed him. And then everything sort of comes to a head uh, in LaBelle. Was it LaBelle? Was it a, a historical fact that you would come across in, in reading that was the, the germ of the, of the story back when you first started to break it? 
Well, it's funny. People ask me, what's it about? And I always feel like saying, well, what isn't it about? Yeah. Um, it's about there's so many things going on in this story. I would say when I first started writing, all I knew is I wanted to write a Western. I had no idea what it was going to be about. I had no sense of character. I just knew I was going to embrace every cliche in the Western canon and see if I couldn't find a way to do them in a different way. But I love them all. You know, the train robberies, the guys facing each other on the street, the horse breaking, all that stuff. I thought, well, we have to have all of that in here. But I had no <laughs> idea what it was going to be. And Mimi found for me one day, you know, we would meet every couple of weeks and I, I would just say, I'm looking for something. I don't know what it is. And she gave me a homework assignment to read. 20 novels. She said, I'm going to bring you the 20 best Western novels and you should just read them. And the main reason I wanted to do that was because I was trying to um, get an ear for the dialogue. And if I can't hear the way people speak, I can't write the story. And I didn't want to have a lot of, you know, um, I reckon I should, you know, rustle up a bunch of grub. You know, <laughs> I didn't want to do that. So I was trying to find a way to see if I couldn't, you know, catch some interesting dialogue by reading a lot of these novels. But one day she came to see me and she said, you know, I've been doing a lot of research, <clears throat> and it's interesting, but the, the, a lot of the mining towns in the Southwest are really fascinating. And I said, you mean writing a story about those guys with all the black soot on their faces underground? I don't know if I want to live in that world. And Mimi said to me, I'm not talking about the guys. Yeah. She said, I'm talking about the women. She said, because in several instances, there would be these horrible mining accidents where all the men would die in a single afternoon and a hundred women would be stranded in these towns. And they would either leave and move on or they would try and stick it out and make a go of it. And she said, and it's fascinating. And she further brought me all these, she went to the Gene Autry Museum and brought me all of these great uh, histories, these oral histories that these women had written. And they were fantastic. And along with a bunch of letters she found at UCLA, I began to get a sense of all these great characters that I'd never seen in the Old West. And that became sort of the germ of it. Right there. That's when I knew I had something to write about. So Mimi Munson gets a lot of credit for Godless. What was your favorite of the Western novels that she assigned you? Yeah, we all wish we had a Mimi um, Munson in our life right now. She sounds terrific. We all need a Mimi Munson in our life. I, um, well, I'll tell you, the one novel I deliberately did not read was Lonesome Dove. I was just going to ask about that. <laughs> I had been always putting, and for some reason I had been savoring or saving, I guess is a better way to put it, reading that book because I knew I was going to love it. And even before I wanted to write, a Western. I was just, I don't know why, I was waiting to go on a trip or something where I could just read it all in one go. And I thought, if I read that now, it's going to be so good that I'm not going to want to finish. I'm not going to want to write anything. I'm going to read Lonesome Dove and go, why bother? So I read everything else but that. But I have to say, I had several favorites. One, believe it or not, is uh, that I loved was Pete Dexter's novel, um, Deadwood. Yeah. And they borrowed a lot for the HBO series. And, and in fact, Walter Hill at one point was going to do the film version of the of, of Pete's novel Deadwood, and instead he ended up doing the TV pilot um, by David Milch, which is the same subject, and they're very similar. And the, and the and and Pete's novel had amazing dialogue and amazing characters, and it's not as focused as the series is, but it, it is the it is the same subject, and 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 it was it was a tremendous influence on me. I love that. Um, Desperados is a great western novel, really really terrific western novel, um, written by um, oh my god, I'm going to blank for a second right now when I don't want to blank. This is what happens. I can we can look it up. Um, um, let me think about it in, in a minute um, when I'm not thinking about it. There's a book by Harry Combs called Brules, which is part of the Mountain Men Westerns, which I really loved. And Desperados is by Ron Hanson, That's right. who's written in every every genre you can imagine, and it's and that was his Western, and it's tremendous. Um, um, but, but the Harry Combs novel, Brules, was terrific because, like, say, Jeremiah Johnson, it was it's, it's sort of writing about the man alone, and Roy Good came to me you know, he was really describing a character I thought would be a great, great character for a Western. And, and I, I stole a lot from, from poor Harry Combs. Um, um, the other book, you know, I read 
the Virginian, which was the first Western ever, and it's so dated now because it's got all that, you know, smile when you say that, all that kind of great dialogue that's now corny, but it was fascinating to me to read about ranch life and so on. Zane Gray, Riders of the Purple Sage, you know, those were all books that I really quite, quite love. But I would also say one of the last ones I read was Thomas Berger's Little Big Man, which had a giant effect on me because of the tone. And there was this sort of, it's sort of the catch-22 of Westerns. And it had sort of this unpredictable wild humor that I thought, even in the darkest moments, which I thought was really interesting. So I, all of those were, were, were big influences on me. I wanna, and I stole mercilessly from all of them. <laughs> I want to ask you specifically about the appeal of the Western, because one of the things um, about your career that, that I admire so much, and I know Chris does as well, is your ability to um, translate and almost make the case for some of the most iconic uh, American crime writers uh, who work so well on the page and sort of make the case for them on the big screen. And, and we're going to ask specifically about mm. some of those um, in a moment. But you've done this, you know, I, I wonder about the challenge doing that for Westerns, because as you said, in Hollywood, they were generally considered to be dead. I know that there are people who are passionate partisans of the form. People, um, you know, I, I, my father, who's almost 80, loves Westerns, but I know Chris sitting here across from me loves Westerns, too. For people who might not be sure. as close to 80 myself. That's, that's true. Okay. That's true. You're, you're approaching. We all are, in a way. But, uh, but I'm curious if you could make the case why this, why, why the format excites you so much still, why there is that, that, that the possibility within it to both pay, pay homage, you know, play the hits, but then also find something new in those sort of the, the dusty saddles of a genre that a lot of people may be reticent to reinvestigate. Well, there's a lot in the Western that's fun for a writer. I mean, first of all, everybody lives in the gray area. Good guys are not all so good, and the bad guys are not all necessarily bad. <clears throat> that's a huge part of it for me, and I love writing about people like that. Um, people who are victim of circumstance, you know, in the West, that's a giant, giant theme. And um, the weather, the environment, th- that's a character um, as well. And so people are stuck and trapped by, you know, by by where they are, by what's happening to them. And it's in a way that you don't often get in contemporary stories. Once the world becomes civilized, um, even the notion of crime takes on a very different meaning. Whereas when you're also trying to survive at the same time, it just adds this element of tension that's not there. And watching people try to survive is something I hadn't seen or tried to tackle in terms of narrative. I also love horses. I've ridden them since I was a kid. I just love, you know, I think that there's a whole um, episode in Godless called The Wisdom of the Horse. And I I find them sort of magical creatures. And I'd always wanted to write about them. Has Stephen Stephen seen that episode? (laughs) Yes, he has. (laughs) When we were shooting all the horse stuff, he said, I I don't know how you're doing this. I could never do that. (laughs) But all of that, you know, was important to me, and I think that appealed to me. And, you know, there's there's another genre I've never written about, which is flying. You know, my father was a pilot, an airline pilot, and I've always wanted to write about flying in much the same way I wanted to write about the West. There's just a lot of things, you know, the, the aviation is very unforgiving in the same way that the land was very unforgiving. In, in the Old West, and I, I am attracted to that, and there just seemed to be some narrative that you could spin, and when, when Mimi landed on sort of these folks who were, who were stuck and living a life they never planned on living, that became a theme for me all the way through um, in terms of figuring out how to write the story. I, I wanted to sort of take that question and, and pivot forward to the, the, the crime writers I was talking about, because one of the things that Chris and I love to do on the show is make the case for the iconic American crime novel, is the importance of it and the importance of it to our lives and get more people reading some of these authors. Just to go through the list, you have adapted the greatest of the greats. You've adapted Elmore Leonard, you've adapted James Lee Burke, Charles Williford, Lawrence Block, and then hopefully someday, I think you've done the work, John D. MacDonald um, in the Travis McGee books. Um, all of these writers, I think, are geniuses. All of them have very specific uh, voices. And in many ways, that voice is the appeal. It's our way into the books and why we keep reading them, you know, uh-huh. dozens and dozens of them in some cases. Um, how do you take on that mantle? How do you find that balance between honoring the voice and, and sort of adapt, you know, taking on the voice and then also finding a way to basically blow it out to a wider screen to potentially a wider audience? Well, two things. One, if, if you're a fake and a fraud like me, it's very easy to adapt <laughs> someone else's voice and to sort of take it on and ape them as you go. And, um, 
and and that's a good way to start. And I always, you know, I remember back when I was writing Dead Again, I was reading Red Harvest, the Dashiell Hammett mm-hmm. novel, and I just began to copy him. And there was something that felt really interesting to me about the way he wrote. And what I when I stopped copying him because I realized that's not cool. Um, what what I retained was a kind of simplicity in his work that I liked. And his and I think Dashiell Hammett's voice, I think the elegance in his work has to do with how simple it is and how terse he is in his in his writing. And so the voice is certainly a big part of all those writers you name, and they all have very different voices. But they all have their thematic ideas with each of them that are very different. And, and in the case of Elmore Leonard, there's a kind of unpredictability, even to himself as a writer. Mm-hmm. Frequently on page 90, he'll introduce a brand new character, and the story will go somewhere else. Um, and so there is there is a freedom with, with writing crime stories that I quite like. Also, thrillers in general tend to embrace everything. They embrace melodrama, romance, humor, um, sex, violence, all of it. They're all in those stories. And I also think that they can, they can contain a degree of emotion that's sort of unexpected as well. And so from the, the fun of distilling those stories, because that really is all adaptation is, is kind of a distillation of, of another story and sort of distilling it based on your own point of view, you know, what you think is sort of the residual um, melodrama, you know, what is it that you think it's about? That's really what you're doing when you're adapting any of those folks. So I, I just try to make those adaptations as personal as I possibly can and look at them in a very personal way and own them in terms of my point of view, not the voice, because the voice, ultimately, you can source back to, to the original author, if, if any of that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, by that same token, you're directing a Western, which is, you yeah. know, one of the, uh, the that's one of the sort of real uh, the the golden gooses of, of of filmmaking in America is when you get to join people like Howard Hawks and John Ford and even Clinton Eastwood and even Quentin Tarantino and people who have sort of become modern masters. Godless to me, it really, I, I, I watch it and I, it recalls some of the sort of Josie Wales era Eastwood stuff in terms of its visual mm-hmm. palette, the way you shoot New Mexico. And I was wondering if, obviously, you're you're taking on something that has this huge, rich tradition in, in movies in this genre, but you're also working in it in a way that is pretty rare. You don't often get this much time to tell a story visually. I was wondering what kind of things you had to do to prepare to direct something like this, both kind of intellectually and physically, mm-hmm. something this long, and if there were any touchstones that you were like, I really, I'm going to this as, a, as an influence, or I want to directly avoid this as an influence, sort of, what was your cinematic Lonesome Dove? Well, that's interesting. Um, the Clint Eastwood movies for me are huge. I love the way he directs westerns. Unforgiven is to me a perfect movie. I love Josie Wales. I've watched it a hundred times, and it's a great story. And I love how ultimately it's about the family he puts together. Yeah. And there's a lot of that in Godless too. You know, this notion of the family you choose, and um, I, I think it's very strong in that movie. And 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 Unforgiven is so. Uh, elegant in the way it's made and simple and 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 very clear and not overcomplicated and those are two big movies once upon a time in the west i watched the first hour of that movie every you know few months practically i love the way that movie shot and um you know right up through henry fonda's introduction you know it's amazing to me and just shot for shot that scene where Claudia Cardinale walks, you know, through the station into the town and the camera goes up and over the train station to see her, you know, going from this super quiet little depot into the 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 busier burg on the other side is really full of just shot for shot. It's, there's there's so many things you can learn in that movie and the way he uses music. You know, there's so much music in, sure. in this all of the spaghetti westerns and I love them all. High Plains Drifter was another one for me, you know, thinking about how I was gonna shoot LaBelle and when people are riding in and out of Bell, you look at his, intra, his entrances and exits into that little town on the Salt Lake in, in High Plains Drifter, and again, very simple but very powerful. You always know what you're looking at. It's very clear, and those were big touchstones for me, those those movies, more than anything else. I mean, I tend to like the Clint Eastwood movies more than, say, the, the John Wayne movies, for, for whatever reason. Um, they just speak to me more, partially because they're darker, and again, 
good guys and bad guys, it's not so clear. I, I mean, you know, he's a horrible human being in High Plains Drifter, yet he's the hero. Yeah. <laughs> and I think he rides into town and basically rapes someone the minute he rides into town. It's awful. And But he is, for all intents and purposes, the, the hero of the of the story. And and so it's fascinating to me because morality is so blurred and it's directed that way, too. He doesn't flinch from from anything. And those were all, for me, very important. But I also, you know, I watched McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which had a giant influence on me. It's in a mining town. The town is also a character. The buildings, the way it looks, where it is, you know, I think they shot it maybe in, I want to say, Lake Tahoe. But it looks very different than any other Western you've seen. And there's a lot of, you know, there's water and bridges, you know, and the, you're, you're, the town crosses the river. And I thought that was very interesting, too. I love the way, I think it was Vilmo Zygmunt who shot that. Yeah. I love the way that was shot. And I was hugely influenced by that and Butch Cassidy, the way Conrad Hall shot that and going from super dark interiors to super bright exteriors, that was a huge thing for us. We did a lot of that. And because you can shoot digitally now, um, we don't need a lot of light. Yeah. You, you can, you, you don't have to have as much light and, and Godless, you know, um, is shot with in, in, lots of natural light. Not, not much, not, not, not a lot of lighting in this, you know, we're not bringing in a lot of light if we can help it. There are scenes in the, in the bar in LaBelle during the day where we had not a single light in there. We just shot with the available light and it was gorgeous. Wow. And so those were sort of the, the rules we, we set for ourselves. If, um, and, and those are the kinds of films that they look like they were shot in natural light, even though Butch was, and it looks like it was. And same with McCabe and Mrs. Miller. It doesn't look like it's lit. It just looks like it's all natural. And, and that was the goal. That's what we were going for. Scott, you referenced Dead Again, which was a terrific movie from, from 91. Um, but that also speaks to the fact that you've been writing movies for a, a good amount of time. A long Fucking time. And, and, and I, was be, I was being polite. And, but you've also seen a lot of changes in the industry. And one thing that I find really um, inspiring and great to hear just from what you're saying at the moment um, is when you're talking about all the things you had to learn and appreciating classics, appreciating you know, specific shots in, in classic films, talking about the, the individual voices of these great writers who, are, who were great when they wrote these books in the 70s and 80s and 60s and great when, they, and great when they're adapted today. Um, I feel like, and I, I might be straining here, but I feel like there's some lesson to be learned here, just in Hollywood in general, about sort of worshiping the right things and not just slavishly worshiping IP. And I think one way to sort of put a bow on this sprawling, maybe even not a question, is your work on Logan, which Chris and I both liked so much. And one hmm. of the reasons why we liked it is because, yes, it is, quote unquote, a superhero movie. There, Wolverine is in it. But really, it's playing with these classic bones and and doing doing justice to them you can tell that there is some history there that isn't just that wasn't stapled together and published by marvel comics in 1985 well i think jim and i were very 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 conscious of not worrying about the marvel universe and i didn't want to you know he i i was actually writing shaker while he was developing logan um with some other folks for a while and I kept resisting coming on board because we had done the Wolverine movie together a few years ago for a different regime at the studio. Someone else was running the studio, but it was it was a frustrating experience because ultimately we wrote the, the, the version of that movie that I had I had sort of sold to Jim was let's take away his superpowers on page ten and see what happens to a guy who's immortal his whole life who's watched everybody die mm -hmm. um, that he loves and now suddenly he's got his wishes come true you know he's lost all of his powers and let's explore that character that ought to be really interesting and we did and we wrote a version of that movie and then the the then studio regime said yeah but where's the giant robots and the bullet train chase and the this and the that and it became corrupted with I think a lot of that stuff and I was reluctant to go back into that and but but thankfully Jim Mangold had a very clear idea he kept saying I don't want to sell happy meals with this movie I want to do I want to do what we tried to do the last time and I said well if there's going to be any weight we have to kill him and the studio thankfully agreed because we what we were able to do was ignore all of the sort of superhero lore to a degree and ignore the universe and just write a great character study based on if you were this guy, what, you know, what would that feel like? What would that be like? But if you were professor, if you were Zay, you know, professor, I'm going to, God, 
I'm blanking now. <laughs> Professor yeah. X, yeah. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> Professor X, you and your and your mind is the most powerful mind in the world and you started losing it. What would that what would that be like? And that was really fascinating. And I I, I would pitch it to Jim as let's write, you know, there's this girl too who's a little version of him, which I thought was when I saw the cover of that comic book with this little girl mm-hmm. and the claws out of her hands, I thought that's spectacular. So why don't we do an ultraviolet paper moon? instead of a superhero movie. And to be honest, I'm going to confess something. I've never seen an X-Men movie start to finish. And I've worked on a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> and I've never seen one. And and I don't like them. I don't like superhero movies in general because mm-hmm. they're cheating. And we even what, wrote... What do you mean by cheating? Page, I just want to stop you because I think that's th- th- interesting. Nobody, can, nobody dies. They're defying gravity. They're, yeah. you know, they're, they're not following any rules. It's all random. And people are behaving in ways... That are uh, the stakes are always it's the you know the end of the world you know you're trying to create giant supervillains and give them clever names you know and none of it is personal and I think the best stories are always personal you know Chinatown is personal it has nothing to do about what with water rights yeah <laughs> and, you know and so the mistake people make is they make the superhero movies actually about oh it's going to be the end of the world and oh that's not what people care about when you're watching buildings being toppled and things like that and nobody's getting hurt i think that there's a kind of distance and it becomes it becomes all about the the spectacle and i don't know how to write that stuff but i do know how to write character and jim is such a gifted director and such a gifted writer and you know and so why not why not apply all of that to something that is much more meaningful and emotional? And that's a, that's what we did, and it was a ball. We had a great time doing that just by ignoring all the other stuff, by saying, what would be the natural story to tell about a person in this situation? Yeah, it's, it's Forgetting hard. all the other Marvel bullshit. It, it's hard to, to sort of draw the – maybe to see the line at first, but if you take – there is a line that connects a character like Logan in the way that you wrote him and Michelle Dockery's character in Godless and um, the way um, uh, the way you write um, – oh, God, see, I'm, now I've, I've, I've inherited it. I was going to say Liam Neeson's character. Sorry, but of course it's, it's the great, In A Walk Among the Tombstones, it's uh, Scudder, Matthew Scudder, the great yeah, Matthew Scudder. Scudder. Uh, the way you wrote Scudder in A Walk Among the Tombstones, which, side note, is just a terrific, terrific film that you wrote and directed – Oh, thank you. Um, also, just but, on the side note, thank you for uh, keeping the Boyd Hol- Holbrook train going because I, yes. I, I'm, yes. I, I, he is one of my favorite actors right now, and, and I'm, he, two of my favorite performances for are sure. in Logan and Tombstones. But but in these movies that I'm mentioning, and also um, potentially in other projects, I, you know the the Hoke. Uh, pilot that you did for FX based on the Williford books and then if the Travis McGee movie ever gets made these are all characters who are interesting because of the bruises they carry and because of how close they came to death moving forward that is a seems to be a fertile spot for you as a writer well it's a fertile spot for anyone as a writer it's just it's a great thing to write about and it's the first thing that gets ignored be in service of spectacle and again um, because in particular, studio movies are are marketing driven now. If you think about it, what gets greenlit is stuff that will sell overseas and stuff that they believe they can sell. And occasionally, something will break through. I mean, Logan is a minor miracle. Um, and even though we had started it before Deadpool, the prod it had been in development well before that. I think Deadpool gave the studio confidence to commit to what was happening on Logan. But for the most part, those are anomalies. And then once they become successful, then everybody starts to sort of copy that. But but if what you're to what you're saying to your point, the idea that writing about flawed people, writing about people who have have suffered some sort of extreme either tragedy or trauma. Um, um, and how it's informed them, sourcing every decision they make in their life, sourcing their rules for living, if you will, to this sort of past event, that's a pretty common common thing to, to use. And it's rich. It's always good because there are infinite possibilities and infinite ways to go. And a lot of it becomes, you know, certainly uh, production design. Is it a guy living on a boat? Is it a guy living inside an abandoned refinery? You know, is it a guy living in a tiny little apartment in New York City? They're all ultimately lonely guys and Raymond Chandler wrote about that you know when he was writing about private detectives and writing about the loner detective way back when and it is it's a common it's a very common and satisfying I would say trope can you tell how badly I want the Travis McGee movie to happen I keep subtly you know, I do too. 
And my, here's my issue with that, and I think Boyd Holbrook would make a tremendous Travis McGee right now, by the way. From, from your but, lips um, to Hollywood's ears. But I think there's a problem. I wonder if Travis isn't better served on television now. Yeah. As I, a really good good series. And I'll tell you, I'm really flirting with, and if, if once I start going down that road, because he is anachronistic, and you have to do him in period, yep. because his, his point of view is very of the 60s. You know, and what he's talking about is very, very much a part of the 1960s. It feels, he feels just like that, that old hippie that won't shut up, that, you know, now. And, Particularly um, as he goes forward, in, because he becomes 60s, he, and then he watches the 70s, and he watches the 80s, and you see yes, it happen to the yes. world. Yes, and also his views on women and the way women are treated. I'm not so sure it works as well today. Um, but li- even living on the boat and even even the Florida of that period was, was way more interesting than it is now. But I'll tell you, the guy I think about doing now, and I think about doing him in like 1950 or 1960s, and putting him in Europe, hiding somewhere in like the south of France, would be Sam Spade. Oh, yeah. I'd like to cool. see what happened to him. <laughs> and he's now 50 years old, you know, I don't know take your pick daniel craig or ray fines or somebody living in europe and and sort of haven't hasn't done what he's done for a long time and pick him up now at that point in life i think that might be a really interesting character I to explore i feel like you have your net, next few netflix shows planned out that's pretty good um scott we <laughs> have to wrap know. it up there it was a pleasure sure. talking to you i hope we can do it again sometime everybody should check we out will. godless yes and, and check out scott's uh novel shaker too because we have a book club uh, we haven't done it for the book club yet maybe we will but it's a great great crime read do it for the book club <laughs> if you come back and talk to us we will uh, happily anytime thanks Thank you, guys. take thank, care thank All you right. scott bye-bye Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Zelle. Cash is easy to lose, and checks take a while to clear. Thankfully, there's Zelle, a new way to send money to your friends and family from your banking app. Once you're enrolled, the money moves right between almost any U.S. bank accounts and typically arrives in minutes. Plus, it's backed by major banks, which means you can send money confidently. Just go to ZellePay, Z-E-L-L-E-P-A-Y.com to learn more. Zelle, this is how money moves. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Mack Weldon. With a smart design premium fabrics and a simple shopping experience, Mack Weldon underwear is definitely better than whatever you are currently wearing. In addition to looking and feeling great, all Mack Weldon products are crafted with natural fibers that have built-in performance capabilities, so they work hard too. And they even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. All that, and they are shipped right to your door. If you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you, no questions asked. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your purchase using promo code WATCH. Finally, today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, the new film from Academy Award winner and watch favorite Martin McDonough. If you've seen In Bruges, if you've seen Seven Psychopaths, you know this is our guy. Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri is a uniquely entertaining tale of revenge and redemption starring Academy Award winner Francis McDormand, Academy Award nominee Woody Harrelson, and acclaimed actors Sam Rockwell and Peter Dinklage. Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri now playing in select theaters.